I uh, just I want to talk about a story that you know well. Uh, in fact, all four Gospels record it. Matthew 14 uh, tells us that John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus to tell him that John the Baptist was brutally murdered. You know this story. And upon hearing it, Jesus is heartbroken. He needs to spend some time alone. He gets in a boat and he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But the people on shore watched the boat and they figured out what the trajectory was. And they rushed around the shore. And when he landed the boat, there was already a big crowd. And the crowd just grew and grew and grew. And Matthew 14 says he had compassion on the people. And he healed them. And this went on all day. And finally, his disciples came to him later in the day and said, Jesus, um, you know, it's probably a good deal. We send these people home so they get something to eat. Jesus said, well, you give them something to eat. And so they scratched their heads and they came up with five loaves and two fish. And you know the story. And Jesus blessed the food and began to break it. Now, here I want to stop for a minute because uh, th this miracle is far more wonderful than, than we imagine. You know, I, I did some math on this. I figured five loaves, two fish. If he had taken the time and divided those by himself, my guess is it's about 10 seconds for each five loaves and two fish. Now, if he was the only one doing that, there's 5,000 men, probably 5,000 women, probably 10,000 kids. If he's the only one at 10 seconds each for 20,000 people, that's over 24 hours. This was a bigger miracle than this. He did. He passed it to his disciples and they saw it divide. They passed it to the groups. They saw it divide. And everybody was in on this. It was it was this amazing miracle. And I don't have time to tell the whole story. But but when it was over, they collected 12 baskets full, which is an amazing thing because every father that was there said to their kids, hey, listen, this is a free lunch. Eat up, right? I mean, it's like me when I go to a buffet. I'm thinking, you know, you're going to lose money on me. And, and so they ate all this food. And there were still 12 baskets full left over. And then Jesus made his disciples go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, John's gospel uses the word he compels them. And it says because the people wanted to make him king by force. Jesus didn't need his disciples getting in on this because he knew what they would do. So he sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and it really was from one corner to another about an hour sail under good circumstances. And then finally, Jesus goes up into the mountains to pray. And he prayed all night long. Now, his disciples getting into the boat, um, you know, if you picture them and try to imagine what's going on in their minds, they are absolutely giddy. They are besides themselves in joy in rapture, they're high-fiving one another, they're hugging, they're crying, they can't believe what they just saw and what they just participated in. And they realize this is huge. 
And they thought, we get to be right on the inside of this. And they didn't notice when the wind began to, to kick up. And they didn't notice when the waves began to grow. But the waves grew and grew and grew. And finally, they couldn't ignore it anymore. And finally, the sail had to come down. They couldn't sail anymore. And the oars went out and they began to row. And for 10 hours. Think about that. For 10 hours, they rowed and they rowed and they rowed. They took turns rowing and then going to the side and throwing up loaves and fish. Their arms were aching. Their backs were burning. Mark's gospel says they were straining at the oars. In other words, they, they were trying just to stay even because if they quit rowing, they'd be pushed back and capsized. They had to maneuver the boat to be in, in, a, in a certain perspective to the waves just to keep from drowning. The giddiness of the miracle was gone. They now were in the middle of a life and death struggle. And it was pitch black. They didn't know where the shore was. And they were frightened. They were very frightened. And their faith was gone. 12 hours ago, they got into this boat so full of faith and so excited. And now their faith was gone. Storms storms. You face them. Storms. You lose a job. It's a storm. You have to take a reduced price on your house. Storm. You're in, involved in relational conflict. Storm. The doctor doesn't bring good news. Storm. One of your kids spazzes out. Storms. Ten hours ago, these disciples were so excited, but now they are without hope. With out hope. If you haven't been in a storm, you just haven't lived long enough. But I'm looking around the screen. I'm thinking all of us have been through storms and more than one storm. I, I've got five things to say about storms. Number one, they will come. There's no escaping it. You've got a storm coming. Number two, storms will always make you question your faith. No matter how the Lord had moved before, when you're in the middle of a storm, it can batter you to the point where it, it weakens your resolve and you question everything. Truth number three, a storm is not an indication that you're doing anything wrong. Hear me. The disciples were absolutely in the center of God's will. Jesus said, you go there. Uh, they weren't out on a pleasure cruise. They weren't, they weren't like Jonah, you know, trying to sail away to Tarshish. They were in absolute obedience to Jesus, and the storm came. Reality number four, and this is the key one. Jesus will always come to you in the storm, always. Some of you are in a storm now. He will come to you. Now I'll give you <laughs> that his timing and your timing and my timing are not the same. The disciples would have far preferred he came in the second hour or the fourth or the sixth. 10 hours later, 
he came to them in the storm. He will always come. His timing is perfect. And sometimes we won't know why the timing was what it was until we get to heaven. It says in, in Matthew 14, 25, 26, shortly before the dawn, which tells us that Jesus sent them on the other side of the Sea of Galilee while it was still light. Now, shortly before the dawn, 10, 12 hours later, just rowing, shortly before the dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. They thought they were dying. When they saw him, they said, it's a ghost. In other words, they thought, this is an aberration of death. This is the death angel coming to claim us. We are going to die. 12 hours ago, they were high-fiving one another. Now, they're saying goodbye to one another. They're ready to die. Now, Jesus knew this, and so Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Except that's not quite what he said. It's far more powerful in the original language. What he really said is, take courage, I am. For the first time, Jesus identifies himself by using the name of God. I am. When Moses was having the dialogue with the burning boars and he says, who shall I say to Pharaoh has sent me? God in the burning bush said, tell him I am has sent you. I am. Jesus says, I am. Now, this story is longer, as, as you know, and has another really neat thing, you know, about Peter saying, you know, if this you call me to walk on the water to you, and he does, and I don't have time for that. I just really wanted to talk about storms and the impact they have on our lives, which brings me to the fifth point. You and I were not made to weather storms alone. We're made to go through storms together. You and I are ministering and preparing to minister in the land of rugged individuals, in a land where our default is not to open up with one another, is not to share life, and it's to our detriment. We're not made to go through storms alone. We're made to go through them together. Several years ago, I was coaching baseball. I was pastoring in Bedford, Ohio, and I was coaching 14-year-old boys in, in a league called Pony League. I also coach football. I love coaching. And uh, we were getting close to the playoffs, and this particular game had a particularly bad umpire. <laughs> I mean, he was really bad. And after about three blown calls, he called a guy out at the plate, and the guy in my estimation, was clearly safe. And I couldn't take it anymore. I, I, I couldn't. I rushed out of the dugout and I got right in his face. And I said, are you blind? And he said, he was out. I said, he wasn't even close to being out. He said, be careful. I said, you're blind. He said, be careful. I said, why don't you get, I don't know exactly, but I, I just was besides myself in frustration. He said, be careful. And I kept going. He said, you're out of here real demonstrative, you know? And I said, what? 
I said, I've never been kicked out of a ball game in my life. He said, well, now you have. You're out of here. <laughs> so I I turned around. I sat in the dugout. And he said, I'm not starting this game till you're out of here. So I got in my car. He could see the car. He wouldn't start the game. It wasn't until I got the car and drive and left the park that the game continued. I didn't sleep that night. I was so frustrated. Now, on a side note, <laughs> this isn't a side note. This must have been uh, before the proliferation of cell phones, at least camera phones. Because uh, had this been recorded, I don't know that I would have ever lived it down. I didn't swear. I didn't hit them. But I clearly did not manifest the fruit of the spirit, if you know what I'm saying. I was absolutely beside, I was unglued. And, and I say, you know, everybody has a YouTube moment. Everybody does. We all have YouTube moments. For me, it's lucky that it wasn't recorded. <laughs> Anyways, the next day, I, I felt terrible. And so I found the other coach apologized found the umpire apologized and i thought it was done <laughs> well words started getting out you know we had a prayer meeting that met uh with the mayor every friday morning uh, he saw me coming he backed away and said oh he's gonna bump me i mean it, it, everybody uh was on me about this and so i had a a newspaper uh column that i wrote every week and uh and so i wrote about it and and i just fessed up and said, you know, I blew it. And I said, you know, there are times that, that we're called upon to say the nine most powerful words in the English language. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Not making excuses. I am sorry, but you're a bad umpire. No, no, no. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And so I just laid it out there and made some kind of moral for everybody else and went on with my life. About three weeks later, I was in the, in the, in the foyer of the church greeting people. And a lady came in and she saw me. And she just started to cry. And uh, I pulled her aside. I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, pastor. She said, she said I, I, I lost my temper with my whole family and I said some things that I should have never said. And I I think I have destroyed the relationships with my family. She said, I I I just I, I feel like I can't undo it. I I I've just blown it. And I I told her the story about getting kicked out of a ball game. And I told her the nine powerful words, I am sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Now, there is one slight alteration on that in marriages. <laughs> it's, I am sorry, you were right. Please forgive me. But that's another deal. And, and uh, uh, she looked at me and she said, you got thrown out of a ball game? I said, yeah. She said, you? I said, yeah. She said, you're a pastor. I said, oh. She said, you got thrown out of a ball game? I said, yeah. She said, maybe, maybe what I did wasn't undoable. Maybe, maybe, maybe I could say those words. And I said, yeah, 
Yeah, why don't you? Why don't you go to your family and just say, I have no excuse. I I, I don't want to say any of you may, I, I want to tell you I was wrong and ask your forgiveness. She said, okay. You know, we need one another. We live in the land of, of the rugged individual. But the reality is we need one another. And sometimes we need to share the storms of our lives. Sometimes we need to share them while we're going through them. We always need to share how he has brought us through. Because some people need to hear our story. And we need to hear other people's story. And when we share our story, we help others. But it really, really helps us. Look what it says in Hebrews 10. Um, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all, all the more as we see the day approaching. But encourage one another. Now, you think about it. How can you encourage somebody if you don't know how they're discouraged? You know, there's about, depending on which translation you use, but roughly 58 times in the New Testament where the words one and another are back to back, one another. Forgive one another, bear with one another, encourage one another. Well, how do we bear with one another if we don't know what the other is bearing? How do we forgive one another if we don't live in close enough community that we never get on one another's nerves? How do we encourage one another if we don't know what it is that's got them discouraged? You know, we were meant to do this thing called life together. And the only way we make it through these storms is together. Now, I said earlier, Jesus will always come to you. But what's interesting, he usually comes to you in the form of another believer. In the form of a friend who says, I've been there. And here's what he did. And here's what he'll do for you. And it looks black right now. But he's got more power than that. We need one another. So that's the word for today.